Well, turn with me to John chapter 18. We'll continue our time together. John 18. And in some ways, we're going to pick up a little bit where we left off last week. But in order to do that, I, there's some thoughts I need to give you just so you understand what John is trying to accomplish here and actually how it applies to our current circumstances today. I think it's safe to say that stress levels are probably at an all-time high right now around the world. When you consider the frustrations with our current circumstances surrounding the pandemic, and then it's compounded with the social and political unrest, it appears to be this cosmic chaos. At least that's how I feel. And by most people's social media, they agree with me. Many Christians privately, mostly, struggle with where is the presence of God? Does God care about what is happening? Why does this feel random and chaotic with, with no purpose or meaning behind these events? And it seems as if all of the prayer meetings that happen are have no, having no effect. So why isn't God answering these prayers? Why hasn't he come back yet? That's a question I've heard even in my own home. Does he not care about all of this pain and suffering that is happening right now? And I know many of you feel this fear and anxiety and weary. On top of that, you feel like a failure for your lack of faith and trusting in God. Strong Christians would never question God. Strong Christians would never feel as if their life is in chaos. It's always organized. If I only trusted God more, if I only obeyed Him more, my life wouldn't be as hard as I apparently have been making it. And then what does this do? It leads us to even more discouragement and more depression. I think John 18 was intended to give God's children comfort in the midst of chaos. We're going to see this this morning in the text. There are two important truths that John is pointing out and referencing and leading the reader to in this chapter, and that we'll cover both of these this morning. And then we'll, over the next two weeks, continue to unfold John 18 and show that everything that we're experiencing and everything that's in the text is not chaotic and random, but has meaning and purpose. There's a theme throughout the Bible, which we started to reference last week, but I really never paid much attention to it before I started to preach through John. Studying the book of John and recently teaching a class on covenant theology, I realized something about the story of the Bible that John is pointing to here. And this is kind of the theme, if we were to add it to what we said last week, is that the Bible is full of chaos and seemingly randomly unrelated events. All of them feel this way. What I mean by this is if you read this, if you read your Bible as someone who has no information about God or the Bible at all, you are experiencing the story for the very first time in this relationship with God. And let me add even something more to that, that you are actually in that time period that it's being unfolding. So you're with Noah, you're with Abraham, you're with Isaac. These could feel like maddening stories that have no structure or purpose to them. 
Here are a few stories that kind of help, will help you understand what I'm getting at. And you already know of these. If I were to ask you to tell me what are, what stories seem, what could seem random, if you are the person, feel random about what's going on, of what's happening. Noah would be one of them. <laughs> you have to understand, Noah didn't have a Bible that he engaged with the nature of God and knew all things of God. You guys know where Noah shows up in the story? Like the first beginning of the book called Genesis chapter 6. We don't know what Noah knows other than God comes to him and says to him, you're going to build an ark out of gopher wood because I'm going to flood the entire world. That doesn't sound random to you. It sounds random. Okay, so he builds the ark. And then he floods the world. And then Noah gets drunk. I mean, that's just kind of like, there's these stories that, what is going on? Why is that significant? But let's fast forward to Joseph. For whatever reason, Joseph's brothers hate him. Some theories on that. And out of their hatred for him, they decide to sell him into slavery. That sounds like a great story. But you have to understand, we're looking at it from the past going back. He's experiencing it for the first time. We don't know what he knows about God. Other than he understands that he's a part of this tribe. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob happens to be one of the sons of it. And his brothers hate him, and they sell him into slavery. And not only that, he ends up becoming imprisoned while he's there. He has this up and down ride. And from what we can read and what we can hear, God is not telling Joseph what's going on until the very end of it. Of course, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, What you, brothers, meant for evil, God intended for good. But in the moment of it, it was chaos. It was confusion. His life wasn't in this upward trajectory. It was slavery and then imprisonment. For what? For being a son. That was his, what he was guilty of. Abraham. Even back up. Abraham. He tells Abraham, this old man, you're going to be a father of a nation that is as large as the stars. Of course, Abraham hears this and goes, great. I'm old and we can't have kids. And so what does he do? He ends up having a baby with another woman, right? And it's there's this constant, even if you read that story, what happens with that child, what happens to that woman, it's full of chaos. And then God has to come back to him three separate times to remind him of this promise. But the, the story feels, you know, what's going on? What's being promised here? And then eventually you get to Israel. So the nation actually is actually born. And in this nation that these people are supposed to belong to God, it feels as if they don't even want to be a part of God. This is the psalmist describing the nature of Israel's relationship with God in Psalm 106.12. Then they believed his word. They sang praises. Next verse. But they soon forgot his works. <laughs> and they did not wait for his counsel. That's a great description of their experience. So 106.43. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purpose and were brought low through their iniquities. So Israel's experience with God is just full of being enslaved and brought out, enslaved and brought out, captivity, idols, people being massacred for their disobedience. It feels like the whole entire story, why is God doing this with these people? And then David, you move on, they finally get a king. And David starts looking at his own circumstances. By the way, if we sing songs here, the tune always feels happy, calming, and the words are always positive. When David writes a song, this is what it sounds like. Psalm 13, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I'd love to see how this tune goes. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies exalt over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Can you imagine telling God to consider this? Consider this, God, and then give me an answer in the form of a song. I'm just saying. My God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He just keeps going on. So David is admitting the chaos and randomness of his life is not making sense. Why are you doing this? and then gives a song for the nation of Israel to join in in singing with him. So I don't think the the people of God looked at their lives and had full understanding of everything that was going on. They questioned constantly, what are you doing, God? This feels random. To them, the instructions felt peculiar and unnecessary even at times. Have you ever read the law? feels very unnecessary at times. But all of this random and seemingly chaotic events I would say what we learn from the New Testament are the perfect design of God. There was never a hair out of place or unaccounted for in these stories from God. Not even a hair. God never left his people without hope. Even though they didn't fully understand what he was doing and seemed chaotic, his promise to rescue them and to restore them, he was always faithful to. What was hidden to them was how he will orchestrate his perfect will. So to Noah, Joseph, Abraham, Israel, and David, their lives felt complete chaos. But as you read the story unfold and how God responds, it turns into this tapestry of the glorious picture of redemption. In these stories, God always reminds the reader or those who are in this story of his faithfulness and points back to his covenant with them. But as Israel was so quick to forget, we too are very quick to forget the promises of God. So I say all of this because there's a phrase in the New Testament that Paul uses more than six times to describe this seemingly mysterious, random chaos that's going on in all of these stories. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with me real quick to the New Testament. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Colossians and Ephesians. I just want you to see these. This is what I was referencing, is that I I didn't fully understand what was going on with the Old Testament until, one, I had to teach covenant theology, and then, two, teaching John, it really helped me, especially back in John chapter 2, when we started to unfold the mystery of Christ, and Christ even uses this language. There's a phrase that Paul uses, and he calls it the mystery. And in, in reference, he's talking about the mystery surrounding Jesus as Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Okay, so he's talking about the Old Testament at this point. New Testament hasn't been written. So he's talking about the Old Testament being fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He's saying the chaotic randomness was a mystery of God unfolding his will to the person it's happening to did not feel like it made sense 
But Paul is saying, the responsibility given to me today is to reveal that mystery to you. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's saying this unfolding of this randomness of the Old Testament actually is this perfect cohesive plan of Christ coming to us. Ephesians 1, if you'll just turn over real quick to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 7, 8, 9. He uses this language again of mystery. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So he's just telling you, okay, we have been saved by grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So again, Paul is talking about this mystery that's now being revealed and it's being revealed in Christ being our redemption. And then one last section, I'll just read it to you for the sake of time. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and following, it says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So he's saying this unfolding plan of God, he actually uses the word, the will of God, is was a mystery to the people of God. What is he doing and how is he doing it? And why is he doing it this way? He's saying is now being fully revealed. Jesus uses this phrase, this language of fulfilling the will of God. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'll read it to you. John chapter 4, verses 34, he says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Chapter 6, verse 38, for I have come down from him not to do my own will, but the will of him, the father who sent me. So several times through Jesus ministry, he will tell his disciples that he has come to accomplish the mysterious hidden will of God and that it's no longer being hidden, but being revealed. They never saw it until it was revealed to them. This is why it's called a mystery hidden in times past. Um, just one more section, and I think this will help us understand what John is doing here in chapter 18. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. This is what Paul says in following. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, before the ages of your, for your glory, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it was written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So he was saying, if people actually understood what was happening, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Now we understand what's going on in John 18. John is opening up for us this book of secrets, in other words. He's saying, let me show you what the culmination, what the end result of all of this chaos of the Old Testament that seems random and messy. Let me show you what it's actually leading us to. And he's revealing God's will behind it unfolding. And just to quote again, 
Verse 7, it says, which God decreed before the ages. So this isn't God responding to humanity. This is so important to understand. God didn't start the world and then it fell into chaos, and now God's cleaning it up. Please understand that God is in the chaos. He is not responding to the chaos. There is a difference. Ephesians chapter 111, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God, of whom he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things includes the seemingly chaos that we find ourselves in. Now let's connect this to what we learned last week. God has always intended to have Jesus be our replacement. The reason for the cross is because Jesus had to become the curse in our place on a tree so that we might receive the adoptions of sons and daughters. To quote Galatians 3.13 again as a reminder from last week, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So using these themes that are mysterious at the time, did the children of Israel know that Jesus must be lifted up? When they lifted up the serpent on the, on the, on the pole, probably not. When they were being pulled out of Egypt, they just were being delivered out of Egypt. They had no idea this was a sign of God moving the redemption along in their life of chaos, but in the end is going to be a picture of Christ. So John, again, is using, hopefully, our knowledge of the Old Testament to then unfold the mystery of Christ so that we might see what seemingly seems random and out of control is God's movement in every step, in every moment. So what we're going to do now is look at through some of the high points of John 18, kind of like an overview fly, so that the whole context is here for us. And then again, we'll dive into it a little bit more. These are the two perspectives, the two ways in which I want you to see it, because this is the way that John writes it. So John writes it with two perspectives going on. One is the unfolding mystery for the reader who's already seen the events happen. And then one is from the perspective of those who are going through it. Chaos and randomness, fear and anxiety, right? Our perspective as the reader, their perspective as the experience. You guys following me? So from God's perspective, revealing the redemption of his will, his, this, this plan is unfolding. The scene begins in Jesus in Gethsemane. And what is Gethsemane? We're told it's a garden. This is not random. I don't believe it's random at all because God is unfolding. Where did this all begin? The need for Christ to be the cursed replacement. Where did it begin? It began in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, curse came upon us, and it is in the Garden of Eden that Christ is led to be the replacement for us. And then you have the prophecy of betrayal. What did God? What did Jesus say? There is one among you at the table that is going to betray me. And then, of course, Judas got up and left. Who shows up in the garden? The prophecy fulfilled because it's Judas. Judas shows up and he portrays Jesus by kissing him on the cheek, and then he is arrested. Now, right before he's arrested, this is so important. This is not God being captured. This is not God being outnumbered. This isn't God giving in to the plan and the will of man. This is so key. When they ask Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? He knows why they're here. He meets them. Whom do you seek? What does he say? Well, we're seeking the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And the moment that he does, the entire army falls back 
They don't take a step back. It says they fall back because they have to get back up. That wasn't just for show. John records that to remind us they did not capture Jesus. Jesus said earlier in the book of John, no one takes my life. I lay it down. I'm God. I lay it down. You don't take it. Meaning I'm in control of my life. I am the willing sacrifice on your behalf. And so it's in the garden. The prophecy has come true of betrayal. Jesus, I am God. I portrayed this was going to happen. I just knocked this entire army and all their armor on the floor. And when they stand up, of course, Peter gets all of his confidence. And this is where the story of Peter dips in. What does he tell him? Peter, must I not drink the cup of wrath? He's using this picture, this language. He's saying, this is God's will. He's unfolding it before your very eyes. Peter, that I must take on the punishment of God's wrath. This is me obeying God's will. Back off, is what he's saying. And then I love this language. There's so many pictures here, but it says that Jesus is led out of the garden. In verses 12 and 13, that they bind him, which is funny, and then lead him out of the the garden. And we are given this language of being led. It's beautifully depicting what's going on in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This is what he's about to go through in John 18. He is going to be criticized for crimes he has not committed. And then it says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Where are they leading him out of the garden? right? The imagery of the place of curse, he's now being led as the picture of a Passover that happened every year. I cannot wait to get into this next week, where they would examine the lamb to make sure he was a perfect lamb. There was no blemish and they would lead him to the altar. And at the altar, the priest would sacrifice them to cover their sins. It says, as a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so Christ is about to go and be scrutinized for the, for the people. They want to kill him as a criminal. But for John, he's showing you this is God examining the lamb to prove he is the appropriate replacement for you. And then lastly, for the sake of time this morning, we can't go through all of them, but this is one we'll end with. John reminds Not the last of my sermon, by the way. Last point of my pointing out, just to clarify. John reminds the reader of the high priest who earlier that year had told the people this. Look at verse, if you're in chapter on chapter 18, look at verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, when Caiaphas said this, We'll get into this more. When Caiaphas said this, he wasn't saying, oh, Jesus will be the substitute for their sins. He was saying, if you don't want Rome to overthrow the nation, then just kill this one man. He had no idea what he was prophesying. This is back in chapter 11. John's bringing it up again. He just was led out of the garden. Do you think it's random that John makes that quote? Of course it's not random. It can feel random, but it has complete Clarity on Christ, the mystery being unfolded. He will be the replacement for the people. Now, remember what Paul said, if they would have known, they would have never crucified him. 
the entire event surrounding Jesus was completely blinding to these people. It's chaos. Even there are the, even the, the, the leaders are like, what do you want? This is, what do you want with me to do? You have, I, I have no idea what you're asking here. It appeared random, but clearly as John is writing it, he is making all of the connections saying there is not one moment, not one word of this event is random. It's completely the plan of God fully being revealed. So as we walk through the trials in the coming weeks, we will see just how God orchestrates the, the death of Christ through their culture. There's a lot of culture that's going on between the Jewish culture and the Roman culture. But through those two cultures, we end up having Christ on the cross as one who's cursed. And it's all by the hand of God. Nothing was by accident. Every moment from creation to the point of the cross was God orchestrating every step from the flood to Joseph to Abraham to David, everything that seemed random and chaotic, it is God unfolding and preparing his plan to redeem his people. There's culture that's involved. There's history that's involved. There's sin and randomness that feels like how in the world is God in these moments? But he is in every single moment. That's perspective from God through the reader. Now let's go into the perspective of the disciples. And I would say this is the perspective that John puts in here to help us understand how it feels to go through what they went through. They're expecting Jesus, the son of David, to claim his throne. They just got done asking him, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? I mean, you're going to be king, so who's who's going to be like right underneath you in power? And Jesus is saying, you aren't listening. I'm not coming to establish my king now, my kingdom now. In the trials, he says... This kingdom is, this world is not my kingdom. I'm not bringing it. If it was, then my people would be fighting for me now. But of course they're not. So Peter then sees how the power of Christ is just completely subdued. And Jesus gives in and follows them. And you can imagine what's going on in Peter's mind. Wait a minute. We're supposed to be the conquering people, the promises of David, that our nation will be the the greatest nation of all. And then Peter faces this army, is rebuked, and his entire world is crushed. So when the disciples see the army bind Jesus and lead him away, these men crumble. It's in the narrative. They all scatter, not just Peter, but all of them abandon Jesus. Peter becomes the key focal point because of his statement of faithfulness earlier in the text. John uses this powerful picture within this narrative to show us both perspectives at the same time, because he'll go three verses, four verses. This is what's happening with Jesus. And then we cut to John standing, or Jesus, or Peter, one of these guys, someone standing by a fire, right? On his way, this girl who's confronting him. So you have this back and forth going on. God unfolding his will through this seeming random chaotic, uh, they're, they're just kind of just bull rushing Jesus to the cross. It just seems like a massive mess. The disciples are watching it. You've got both of these perspectives. What's going on and what John is showing is that when the entire world abandoned Jesus, Jesus became the savior of that world. At that moment, when Jesus walked out of the garden, there was no one left faithfully following him. This is why Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, what does it say? Christ died for us. 
Not while we faithfully stood by, not when we fully understand his mystery, not when we fully embraced who he was. He says, when did Christ become the lamb as your replacement? When you were a sinner, not when you cleaned up your life. So as Jesus faces his accusers, attempting to prove he is guilty and unworthy of being the Messiah, John then cuts back outside the story to Peter standing by the fire, rejecting Jesus. Jesus being proven he is guiltless, and Peter over here proving he is guilty. Do you see the contrast that John is doing here? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So three separate times, John moves in and out, revealing the mystery, showing us the need for Christ, showing the blindness of Peter and how he is completely incapable of being faithful to Jesus and showing us just how painfully faithful Jesus was. In other words, what John is saying is through this chaos, you are being saved. Peter, what you feel like is chaotic, your entire world is crumbling around you, is actually Christ moving through history and saving you, and one day you will see this. I think think it's safe to say this pattern is given in the Bible for our comfort. As the mystery is revealed, it is designed to bring us closer to Christ. This is why John says later on in chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life in his name. This chaos leads to salvation. It's not random. We just don't understand it. So God's plan of redemption is not finished. It's not as if the gospels close and the, and then we're done. We have much more that's written and it's written designed for us. So to us, I will say, it feels often random and chaotic. This life we live now after the cross. But to God, According, I'm going to make this argument from Scripture, which we already have. God, in this moment, in this time, sitting in this building as us as a church, God is accomplishing His will. It's not as if He stopped accomplishing His will after Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't finished as far as our salvation was finished, but His purpose wasn't done. And so we are like Peter in the midst of the chaos because we don't fully understand our sinful hearts. We often wonder or wander away and we fall underneath sin and temptation and it feels as if, where is God in these moments? No event or circumstance that you endure is without purpose. As painful and as grotesque as it may be, No event or circumstance that you endure is without purpose because God is accomplishing his will and we are promised that when he is finished, what we have experienced will be for his glory. This is Ephesians 1.12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The entire structure of God's will is for the glory of God. James tells us 
to see our current circumstances as means to ground us, to give us a foundation, to cause us to have a stronger hold on Christ. This is what he says in James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, let me put it this way, a different way of saying that is that it, it creates this assurity. It creates this firmness. It's a spiritual workout. Let me put it this way. The chaos we feel, which we call trials, is God saying, I am actually making you stronger. Because you know what makes chaos so, um, what do I say this, uncomfortable for us? We feel weak and out of control. You ever been in a hurricane or near one or after one? You feel powerless, right? If you've ever been in California and you're in an earthquake, which I've experienced more earthquakes than earthquakes than I have anything else. Uh, the having the ground from underneath you not secure is terrifying. It's terrifying. And what he's saying is these trials that have this random chaos connected to them is keeping you from finding your sure footing on anything else but what? Christ. That's right. One last verse here, First Peter 1.6. Peter, right? So now Peter sees the mystery. It's been unfolded to him. It's been revealed. He looks back, and in those midst of him denying Christ, he knows what happened. And then he writes this. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through its tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials test our faith. And we can see that as a, oh, wait a minute, maybe, no, he's saying, God shakes up your life so that you will stop holding on to that which will not save you. We will not be saved by fixing our culture, church. We will not be saved by fixing this pandemic. Abortion and crimes will never go away. These trials should cause you to sit back and go, there is only one who takes all chaos and makes it clean, and that's Christ. And he never promised to do it now. All of what feels completely out of control and random is not. God is perfectly sovereign and he's accomplishing his will. But yet when we look at it, we think God should do it this way. This is Romans 9. Who are you, oh man, to tell the potter what he's going to do with the clay? No, God, I don't think you should make it this way. I think you should make it this way. How foolish to think of that. But this is what we do. And so as important as it is to do our part in humanity to suppress sin and to love and care for others, you should never think that a greater government or a greater response from the church giving more money to suppress any kind of social injustice is going to accomplish the will of God because God did not send the church into the world to suppress the, the sin of the world. He said, I send you into the world to what? Bring the good news. We aren't sin suppressors. This is why we don't put law on people, right? We give them law to point them to what? The gospel. No one can be justified under the law. I think this current status that we find ourselves in has given us more opportunity because people always ask, where is God? And I'm like, he's right here. He's not gone anywhere. His message has been the same forever is that he redeems sinners by Jesus Christ. It is the most important. This is why Paul says, I don't want to make anything known among anyone except for what? Christ and him crucified. 
So I will say in the midst of this randomness that we feel in our lives, we can look back to the gospel and we can look back to what John is saying. And all of these events are intricately connected to the will of God and he is accomplishing it and nothing, there is not one rogue molecule out there that God is not in control with. So we can see our lives and see our pain and our suffering and the circumstances we find ourselves in. And it is not outside of God's will When Romans, when Paul tells us that God works all things for good, you need to know he doesn't mean a better job, a better home, and a better health, because all of that will fade and burn. He means in the end, when his will is accomplished, and we are with God in the new heavens and the new earth, all of the chaotic randomness and pain and sorrow will then have significance and be good. We can't see it now. It's a mystery. But has he not given us enough to trust him? In the midst of our own chaos, in the midst of our own life, has he not given us enough to feel comforted? And I think the answer to that is yes, he has. He's given us the gospel. Do we have all the answers to life? Of course not. But we have enough, as Paul says, as tells Timothy, we have the word of God. It's sufficient for everything in life and godliness. And so we will look to that to find our comfort.